Well, thank you so much, Dean, for taking the time. I, I truly appreciate it. I've been a, a big fan of, of your company for, for a long time. Uh, I followed it for a while and uh, your journey has been uh, pretty amazing. You, come, you have a background in many different topics that I'm passionate about. So I kind of wanted to start back when you were an environmental and indigenous rights lawyer. Well, beneath it all, I, I've had urge for justice all of my young adult and adult life and how it played out, you know, that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. So because I grew up I was in high school during the Vietnam War. My brother was in Vietnam, wow. um, but I was, you know, on the streets anti-war. At the time, it seemed like the big heroes were the lawyers. They were Bill Kunstler. All these mm. people were organizing and fighting in the courts. They got the United States government to back down on big things like bombing mm -hmm. uh, North Vietnam. They stopped it. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, wow, lawyers, that's what I want to do. I want to be a, a social justice lawyer because that's a place you can really make a stand. Mm -hmm. And it is. And I applaud it. But then when I went to law school, it didn't take me long to figure out that, pardon the pun, I don't have the Constitution for it. You know, <laughs> I mean, you have to be a certain kind of person to tolerate yeah. what sure. goes on in, in the formal practice of law. And I found out I'm not that person. You know, I have a different view of things. So for example, I was doing, um, I was doing a lot of pro bono work on Indian reservations, not even for the tribal councils, which were mostly quite corrupt, but rather for the clans, mm. you know, the people's mm -hmm. organizations. Yeah. But what I found out was that we would, we would try to stop logging or uh, hazardous waste sites or gold mines on these reservations, but it would not go into court. It would go into an administrative setting in the Bureau of Land Management, you know, or the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. We would get stuck in those settings. And I found that the deck was so stacked against people and it was stacked for corporations who, with their lobbyists, had written the regulations that regulated them yep. in what's called capture in the administrative jargon you know the the administrative agencies have been captured by the very people they were supposed to be regulating and so i found wait a minute what am i doing i'm setting bad precedents every time i walk into a courtroom administrative courtroom we'd lose 90 percent of the time and so what am i doing i'm facilitating the further degradation of indigenous mm. lands mm. and the and the environment i'm legitimating the very system i was trying to change so I thought, if I can't do this well, or I don't believe in the system, I should not be a lawyer. Hmm. So I decided that I needed to branch out and do other things. At the time, we had just been fighting expansion after expansion of the hazard of, a, of the largest cyanide wash gold mine in the world. It was in uh, Montana, owned by a Canadian company. And we fought it, fought it, fought it. But man, there was no stopping that thing. But one of, the, one of the guys out there I was working with from the American Indian Movement said, you know, Dean, the problem is that these mines offer jobs and yep. people out here don't have jobs. So unless yep. we have an alternative, economic yep. alternative, mm -hmm. the, the young people are going to keep leaving the land. Their the parents are going to sell the land. And at the end of the day, these guys are going to have won yep. without firing a shot after all these hundred years. So that opened my eyes to the need for economic development, which as a, as a child of the 60s and 70s, economics, law, business, man, that stuff was anathema. That was yeah. the devil. Yeah. I still have this like knee-jerk PTSD reaction to business people, you know, <laughs> even though I am one. Right. At, the, at 30 years, I am one, you know, but I only say I'm not a business person. I'm an advocate who uses business as a vehicle for change. Yeah. I'm not yep. a business person because uh, that's a whole nother talk about sure, sure. what you learn in business school, the culture and the myths that you learn in business school. I give that talk at business schools, by the way. <laughs> anyway, so I decided I had to do something different. So I, I started teaching part-time at the University of Rhode Island, teaching part-time at the University of Massachusetts in the environment, resource management schools. And at one point, I was, I was still doing the um, environmental work on reservations and trying to do some other things, but not really getting going. Mm -hmm. Then I was giving a talk on the causes of deforestation in Brazil, a public talk at University of Rhode Island. A professor comes out of the audience afterwards and says, hey, I've got a friend. He has a coffee shop here in Providence. They didn't call them cafes back then, right? <laughs> this is late 80s. He's got a coffee shop here in Providence. 
And he knows that the farmers he buys from in Brazil, particularly right where you're talking about, are really poor and he wants to help them, but he doesn't know how. Would you be willing to talk with him? So I said, yeah, sure. So I did a little research and I quickly found out that 85% or more of coffee farmers around the world are indigenous peoples. And I knew from indigenous peoples, I knew about periphery peoples, about marginalized communities, about the language difference and the cultural difference between the dominant culture in Mm. any nation state and the indigenous people there. So I thought, okay, well, these are communities I know how to work in. So that's step one. Second thing I noticed was that there were no NGOs, no international aid organizations doing direct work with coffee communities. Hmm. They were in the countries, but they weren't in the communities. And as I said, they're distant communities. They have very distinct needs uh, and distinct visions for their communities from other communities in those states. So, you know, this is very unique. So the three of us got together, the professor, the coffee shop owner, and I, by the way, he just called me the, the <laughs> coffee shop owner. We're still best friends. It's like the start of a joke. The professor, the coffee guy, the yeah, you walked, walked, into, walked the... into a coffee bar. Yeah. And uh, we decided right then and there to start the world's first nonprofit organization uh, developed to uh, designed to work in development in coffee industry and coffee communities. And it was called Coffee Kids. My role in Coffee Kids was to go to these indigenous communities around the world and kind of suss out what the development priorities of the farmers were, not not of me, not of the us white guys up north, but mm-hmm. the farmers. Mm-hmm. And then try to develop an, a program to address them and then go back and the other guys would go to the coffee industry and try to get 5,000 bucks from Green Mountain, 4,000 right. bucks from Starbucks, yada, yada, yada. A very difficult pitch in the late 80s because the companies would say to us, what do you mean development? We already give the farmers money. We buy the product. Why do we Mm -hmm. have to give them anything else? You know, that's where the coffee industry was at that point. Sure. Now, I will say 30 years later, I can say I can very proudly say I was an integral part of the big change that's happened in the coffee industry in terms of its awareness of not only the situation of the environment, social situation, uh, economic situation of the farming communities, but of the responsibility of people throughout the supply chain to each other, Mm -hmm. you know, so that's been good. But of course, no good deed goes unpunished. And so now we have not only blowback to that called direct trade and all these Mm -hmm. other things people Mm -hmm. are inventing to avoid Mm -hmm. taking responsibility, but also, as we were talking about earlier, we've got blockchain and cryptocurrency and carbon credits, which means that people with money to invest have found coffee as a new vehicle to extract wealth from. Everybody in the supply chain is doing it. So one one statistic I want to share with you, which is telling, is that in the 1970s, according to the UN, the ratio between what the farmer got for his coffee, his or her coffee, Mm -hmm. and what the retailer got for his or her coffee was one to three. Okay, for every buck that the farmer got, the Mm -hmm. retailer got three. The ratio today is 15, is one to 15, or in some cases, one to 20. What does that mean? That means that there's a hell of a lot of money being made in coffee and people are taking credit. Oh my God, we're so successful. We're so smart. You know, it's Mm -hmm. this emperor's new clothes thing. But at the other end of the supply chain, the farmer is so much worse off than they were in the 1970s. Right. Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's big. So it's talk about disparity of wealth. And none of the things we're talking about, environmental uh, sanity, economic support, social uh, social good, keeping people on the farms instead of battering against our southern border, desperately looking for work. You know, all of those things have to do with that price of coffee. And if companies aren't willing to pay a reasonable price for coffee, none of this stuff is going to change. So how is that how... I guess, how do we make it better, right? I guess how, I guess how, let's just start with like, how does, how does Dean do it better, right? Like, Boom, that's what's exactly the, right. That's, what's the, that's right? the next step. So, so doing Coffee Kids for a number of years, it was good charity, you know, like we right. found the problem. We but that has its limits, problem. right? It can't, it's that hard to has scale its that. Limits. Yeah. Charity is not change. Mm. Charity is maintenance. Charity is when I have enough of mine, I will noblesse oblige. I will generously give a little something to, to keep you from revolting so that the system 100%. stays where it is. Yep. That's charity and charity is not change. But the only way things are going to change is through change. So how's that happen? <clears throat> well, that's what Dean's Beans was all about. So I'm thinking, okay, 
We started this great nonprofit. We're doing this good work here and there. But what else is happening? Businesses who are responsible for 100% in most cases of the income of these farmers, they're not changing their business model. They're not paying more to the farmers. They're not changing the terms of trade, you know? So all we're doing is putting this little Band-Aid on this gaping wound that's been bleeding these people dry for 500 years. Mm -hmm. So do I really want to participate in that or am I legitimating again, just like we were talking about Mm -hmm. earlier? Mm -hmm. Am I legitimating the very system I'm Mm. trying to change. So I said, how could this look different? What would it look like if a a coffee business paid real money to the farmers, a real living wage to the farmers? Could could the company do that and still be profitable? Is there enough money in there? And the second question was, what would happen if that company took some sense of responsibility for the conditions in those villages? I'm not saying we caused poverty. We didn't. But we're taking advantage of it. We come along and take advantage of it. So the question is, is there a way that we can participate in the issues of the day in those in those communities and make meaningful change? Now, can the farm can the, can the company do both those things, pay real money right. and participate in meaningful change and still be profitable? Right. If that's possible, then we have a model. Right. Now, this, by the way, is 1991. Right. So <laughs> there was no such thing as social enterprise. Right, right, Nobody right. Social enterprise. This is me, the activist turned business person now. I'm like, yep. I've got a model of business. My friend said, Dean, you've never run a business. I was like, that may be, you know, but as a lawyer, <laughs> I represented a lot of businesses. I, I've got some sense here. Sure. So in 1992, 1993, I started Dean's Bean specifically to model business as a vehicle for social change. And the question was, it's an experiment. If this works, great. Then I've got a model. If it doesn't work, I'll go back to being a nonprofit. So that was like 30 years ago, right? And almost 30 years Unbelievable. ago. And we have grown every single year. Unbelievable. We have we have stayed true to our mission. We've stayed relatively small because I'm not interested in growth for the sake of growth. Mm-hmm. This is one of those red pills you take when you go to business school. Yeah. Growth is not, to me, growth is, is not the goal of a business. Growth is the outcome of a business done well, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's not what you learn in business school. So we, we applied that model and uh, it's been amazing. And, you know, to, to, to come to the end of the story, here we are, you know, almost 30 years later, I'm going to be 70 in a year and a half. And I love what I do every day, but it's time to turn it over, you know? So I'm looking at, you know, how can I create a model that is owned jointly by the farming communities we work with, the the employees here, and the customer base we work with? How can I make a model like that, you know? Because Dean's Beans has been very, very good to me, as the baseball players used to say. Baseball's been very, very good to me. So how can I pass that on? Right. But is it almost like showing almost like open sourcing the business model as far as like showing almost like white labeling, like what yeah. you guys do and say, hey, you could take exact blueprint of what we do and you maybe slap your your brand on it. But then Dean's is always going to get, you know, a small, almost a small percentage of something. But like, how do you how do you do that? Right. How, how well, do you... there's there's two things. The first is, are we successful in modeling this approach? And our mission is also. So like education, social change. So mm-hmm. I lecture, I lecture universities, business schools, con, you know, business conferences, social justice conferences. Mm-hmm. I do podcasts. The whole point is get it out there. Yes, yep. yes, yes. This, this is possible. And you don't have to greenwash to do it. Exactly. Because so much exactly. of what's Exactly. If you're going to do it, just do it. Why greenwash? It doesn't well, really but, make much you know, sense to me. To give the devil his, his or her due, part of greenwashing is a conscious effort to blow smoke up customers asses sorry it's the easy way out right i mean it's easy that's volkswagen and the and the emissions scandal but part of it is that mainstream nice people think they're doing something really nice but don't understand the ramifications of what they're doing that's why i'm not a business guy i didn't get my ethics by going to business school Mm-hmm. I'm a street kid. I'm a social justice lawyer, became a business guy. So I'm coming at it from a different world. Mm-hmm. So what I'm trying to show people is you, you don't have to swallow all that stuff you got in business school, or you don't have to just limit yourself to the mainstream paradigm of charity and good works. You got to go deeper. You know, you have to empower people. You have to back off being, you know, the, the Northern savior, you know, you have yeah. to be just, that's, that's more challenging for people. Totally. So what is the blueprint? Is it, 
is it paying is it paying more for the beans is it is it as simple as that is it paying more hourly like what is the what is sort of the the business model blueprint where the yeah. farmer gets treated be the best it can and then the company can still uh, make a profit and be sustainable as a business. First off, the key to Dean's Beans economic success is we, we have a strategy we call buy high, sell low, which of course is the other thing you don't learn in business school, right? It's just the opposite. But we try to pay the farmers as much as we can without being like, you know, without being ridiculous. We can't, I mean, God, would I like to pay $10 a pound for coffee and everybody sure. be happy and have a pickup sure. truck? Yeah, but that's not realistic because we're a business. We have to pay our people. We've got to, we've got to operate. So, and I, I'm trying to model for ordinary businesses. You can do this, right? So we try to pay the, the farmers as much as we can. And then we try to charge the consumer as little as we can. So that from a justice point of view, the consumer, no matter who they are, can actually participate in socially just trade without being a wealthy boomer, right? Right. Because most of the companies we're going to you know, mention, if we want to mention names, are companies that regardless of what they're paying farmers or factory workers, they're charging a boatload of money on our end. And so is that justice or is that sort of shifting the burden a little to the wealthy <laughs> consumer and only the wealthy consumer participates and then the wealthy consumer buys a nice piece of shirt or a cup of coffee and goes, well, I've helped solve that problem, yep. even though I'm still making 350000 bucks a year. Yep. You know, so, you know, the, the question is, can, you know, can you do it differently? How do you make so, it affordable? Right. It's a big problem right. in the industry. How do you yep. make impact because it's affordable? It's not supposed to be, it's not supposed to be charity from the wealthy mm -hmm. that funds this whole thing. It's supposed to be ordinary commerce. So that's what we do. High price to the farmer, low price to the consumer. How can we do that? Easy. We're a smart business. We don't piss away a ton of money where a lot of businesses do. Mm. For example, advertising. Mm -hmm. I think that 90% of advertising dollars are wasted. Mm -hmm. Advertising is a, is a self-promoting business that wants to convince you that you need this kind of advertising in order to succeed. And 75% of all new car sales are word of mouth. You know, I mean, who needs advertising? So we've... We really don't advertise. We, you know, we underwrite a couple of public radio and public radio stations now mm -hmm. and then because I believe mm -hmm. in it, but yep. that's kind of it. Yeah. It's really word of mouth. And, and social media, of course, has just taken, you know, exploded the lid off of the need to do a lot of paid advertising. That's yep. one thing. The other is we don't use distributors because distributors take about 25% bite. Yep. So you've got to, you know, you've got to raise your prices somewhere to compensate for the middleman. But we now have that 25% from the distributors and whatever that money is for um, advertising. And that's money that we have here, we've mm -hmm. saved. Mm -hmm. So that money goes right back to the farmers in terms of social equity premiums that we give every year, in terms of the development work we're gonna talk about, you know, in terms of the COVID relief packages we've been paying out all over the world. Anyway, that's the pricing thing. But the big thing is, is, is farm, is looking towards the farmer. Mm -hmm. what's, our, what's our program? We sit on a three-legged stool. We have economics, we have the environment, and we have society. And our, our business model encompasses all three of those because you can pay high prices to the farmers, but if their kids aren't going to school, that doesn't right. really help as much in the long run. Right. Um, you know, and if their environmental situation is really bad and getting worse, then maybe they got to leave the land, right. you know, and, and climate change is a big mm -hmm. issue there, you know. So on the economic front, you know, we were, we were fair trade before fair trade came to America because fair trade didn't come here till the late 90s. Hmm. But we've been doing this since day one, you know, based on the European model that we, you know, we took in as sort of a baseline. When, when you say, you know, fair trade, direct trade, there's so many labels out there, <laughs> right? There's so many of these different labels out there. And it's, it, it's a, I think it's a good baseline, right? It's a place to start. But then again, it's still hard for the consumer to understand all of them, right? And to really- Very hard to understand all of them. Yeah. So what, what are, what are, what are the sort of, them of are the- more meaningful than others. And what are those? What are the, I guess, what are sort of the top ones and, and, and maybe- a one minute excursion through what I call the sea of seals swimming <laughs> around. They're, most of them are sharks. So it goes like this, organic, certified organic is the primo seal, actually, because it's now a legal standard. Yeah. You can't use the term certified organic unless you are certified organic. And on the farm level, that means three years of going through trainings on how to use natural inputs, how to preserve water, how to preserve soil, soil testing gets done. After a three-year program, those farms 
are eligible to get certified organic and then inspect it every couple of years. And is that, is that by the United States government? Yes. Okay. Uh, well, it's by agents of the United States government. It used sure. to be by independent nonprofit organizations, but now it's a legal regime. So right. under the USDA, yes. there are a lot of organizations that have to get, in a sense, licensed by USDA to do the inspections. Okay. There are a lot of them. Yep. Oregon Tilth, Bay State Organic here in Massachusetts. There's boatload Quality Assurance International. There's a boatload of them. The Japanese have their own. You know, Europe has their own, and they all have sort of this international agreement on it. So that's a very strong, firmly established program. Of course, I see labels all the time that say, beyond organic, we know more than organics. Bullshit. You know, you can say that and get away with it because somebody's figured out how to skirt the regs. But, you know, I can't tell you how many people I've met who make these claims own companies make these claims and have never set foot on us in the soil of a coffee country. You know, it's just more marketing, yep. more marketing. So that's, that's organics. Organics is clearly the best. And actually on top of that is the new bird friendly certificate from Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center, which we work with directly. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, it's great because in order to get bird friendly certification, A, you have to be certified organic already. That's mm-hmm. the entry level. Then mm-hmm. B, you have to have your land measured for the amount of shade, the amount of top top canopy, uh, native species. It's super scientific. Mm-hmm. And we've mm-hmm. been working with farm groups from Peru, Guatemala, and now Indonesia. Well, in Indonesia to create the first Asian bird-friendly certificate in Sumatra. I'm really proud of that. We just finished massive bird survey of the coffee lands in, in Sumatra. And, and what, is the, what does that certification say or, or, or mean? The certification means that the farmers have enhanced and are protecting the habitat mm-hmm. for the gotcha. migratory species that come through. So grosbeak, the bluebirds, the cardinals, all these birds I see in my backyard feeder right now, those birds winter in the coffee lands. Mm-hmm. So if I want to keep those birds on my backyard feeder and happy in the north, then I got to support farms that aren't chopping down the trees that, that they, they live in and planting pines or eucalyptus that do nothing that change the environment. So it's all about a heavy ecological understanding. And Smithsonian works with farm groups to both enhance that understanding and then enhance the land. So it's a great way to fight climate change at the same time, right? Because sure. you're restoring tropical forests and protecting them. Yeah, totally. So that's that seal. And they're unfortunately, you know, it's relatively new. So there are very, there are, very, you know, maybe a hundred farms at this point in about five countries. But that's why we're working directly with Smithsonian because Smithsonian has a small staff. And if the coffee industry relies on Smithsonian with its four-person staff to go around the world and do these things, ain't gonna happen. So but I it's something you it's something you can you can kind of jot down and, and have step by step process and you can kind of well that's what it. I've been doing. I said totally. Smithsonian yeah. two years ago, three years ago now, hey, you've got people like me who work directly with farmers around the world. Yep. Why don't we be your agents to get the information to the farmers, get them excited, and then turn them over to you? And that's what we've done successfully in, in Peru and Guatemala. And we're in the middle of it in, in Sumatra. We just had a great Zoom call between Smithsonian scientists, us, and the farmers about how to get this thing going. So that's very, very exciting. So that's Smithsonian. Then you've got <clears throat> fair trade. Fair trade is really an economic label. It's about making sure the farmer gets decent pay for the coffee. But most people don't understand it because yeah. fair trade has a minimum price, which means that when the world coffee market goes down below that minimum price, $1.40 for regular coffee, $1.90 for $1.91 for organics, when the world trade price, which goes up and down every day, when it goes down below that price, fair traders agree they will never pay less than that bottom price because that's a price that the farmers have said we need at least this much to stay on our land. So that's that. The problem is that a lot of people don't participate participate in fair trade, they say, oh, well, we pay more than fair trade prices. No, you actually don't. You pay more than the fair trade minimum, but the fair trade minimum Mm. only applies when the price goes down. Right. Otherwise, fair traders are required to pay at least five cents more than the market price on any day. Gotcha. And, and we, I mean, you know, the market price for coffee has been less than a dollar for the last three years. So is it is it a positive that it is a commodity that is traded? Is that a positive for the coffee industry? No, no, because commodity. That's why it's so volatile, I guess, right? Because it's 
every well, day it's sort of true until the late 1990s coffee was traded on an exchange just like pork bellies you know mm -hmm. um so the price is going up and down it was a commodity but it was what i would call a somnambulant sleepy commodity it wasn't very interesting to people so there it lay right. within this small band there wasn't not, not enough action not enough buying right to make it until the late yeah. 1990s then investment banks hedge funds wealthy individuals stumbled upon coffee and said wow there's this whole area this is what i'm talking about with bitcoin and everything else it's like whoa we found this new area where we can make a buck and extract value let's get in there so all of a sudden instead of coffee futures being what large companies needed to ensure a future supply at a known price which is reasonable all of a sudden it became a speculative commodity yep. and that was the death yep. of fairness in coffee you and know, so that's why that, fair trade had to be enacted because, that's right, because okay. it balances out the craziness of the market, yep. okay? But that's where we are today even. Now, today, uh, the coffee price is up to like 150 This is This is the yep. commodity price, yep. which is great for the farmer, you know, but next week it might go down to 20 or 90 yep. or 65 Right. You know, because there's a number. But if you, what, one thing that people really haven't looked at, but if you look at, we have, because I've done interviews uh, with uh, Mexican consulates along the border. Listen to this one. You can track the rise of illegal migration, if you want to call it that, you know, whatever right. the term is. You can, you can track the rise of migration over our southern border. The two peaks, one hmm. was in like 2001, uh, another was 210. And now this one, you can track those peaks and put it against the world coffee price. Wow. And you're going to see the highest migration efforts take place during the period of the lowest coffee price. Because who's coming across that border? Coffee farmers, agricultural workers. So we, we started programs on the southern border years ago to try to help people coming across, like get jobs and training and go back home so they could support their families on a very small scale. But here we are. And one of the biggest things people could do is if coffee companies would only pay real money for that coffee, then the farmers wouldn't leave the land. <laughs> the kids wouldn't leave the land. It's really that simple. We could take a huge chunk out of the migration problem simply by coffee companies paying up now remember remember what i said earlier that the difference between what a coffee farmer gets and what a what a dean's beans get not us but what a what a starbucks gets it's 15 to 1 sometimes it's 20 to 1 they're paying a buck a buck and a half for coffee to the farmer and they're charging 15 to 30 dollars a pound here now we don't see the 30 dollars a pound why because companies sell it at 12 ounces or 10 but see, ounces but, but i think like what it's really interesting about how you laid it out because a simple sort of raise, we'll say, we'll call it that, right? A raise to the farmers yeah. prevents so much more economic impact down the line due yep. to whether it's illegal migration, then you have issues on the border, then you have to pay more people to survey the border, and then there's people getting. No in, kidding, huh? It's take, coming out of our tax dollars. It's it's a we're domino. For it. It's we're an unreal for the domino. coffee, and we're paying for the. It's an unreal domino. It's an unreal yeah. domino effect. So we're saying that. Obviously, you know, they're very complex issues, but a, a simple raise, Not really, <laughs> but a simple raise in farmer pay is yep. actually is Quickest a cost. It, it's, it's actually uh, an amazing way to solve a lot of other problems. Right. Yep. Like, and so would that just be two dollars? Right. Like, even though the market fluctuates. Right. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. I companies mean, could still companies don't have to pay the market price. They can always pay more. Right. They could say, hey, of course, it's well, see, 140. We'll pay two dollars. Well, if you talk to some people who've gone like the business route, they said, well, no, we have to pay that. It's like, why do you have to pay it? It's not a law. It's only what we mm. call a guideline, mm -hmm. you know? So no, there's nothing preventing it. In fact, I mean, there are a lot of companies that tend to be small, like us, who pay way more than, the, and than even the fair trade minimum because we deal with the farmers directly. So for example, we pay about three sixty a pound for Sumatran coffee. We mm -hmm. pay close to four dollars a pound for Ethiopian coffee. We pay, you know, three twenty for Mexican coffee. This is at a time when the fair trade minimum is one ninety, and even today, when the market's high, well, it, it, the fair trade minimum is still one ninety, even if the, the market price is one forty today mm -hmm. or something like that. Yeah. So there are plenty of us out there, small companies who are doing this and succeeding. I could name four or five off the top of my head. We're not the market movers, right? You know. When Starbucks is willing to pay real money, I mean, honestly, you know, how much money do you need? 
But the problem is with that is they're publicly traded, right? Well, so, so what? Yeah, but you, you know? but they that matters to them because they have to answer to shareholders, right? And it's like, yeah. So if, I'll tell you a story about, and that. that's what sucks. That's yeah, what so sucks. let me tell you a story about that. So about 15 years ago, I worked with a, a Starbucks shareholder, and we put together a shareholder resolution to be presented at the annual meeting. Resolved. Over the course of five years, Starbucks will become a 100% fair trade company, meaning they will pay fair trade prices for all their coffee, okay? So first, the board of directors- <laughs> after, absolutely- the, after a $50 billion market cap, <laughs> we right. finally going to go- right. <laughs> after, Well, what did I say before, right? What's what's charity, you know? Let me right. have what I think I deserve, then I'll give you a yeah. list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so first off, the board of directors absolutely refused to put this up, even though the shareholder- was a longtime shareholder and, you know, had a reasonable amount of shares. Finally, he got them to back down and put it up there, okay? But this is what happened. So the shareholder resolution comes out, resolve, Starbucks over five years, yada, yada, yada. Then it says, board of directors recommendations. We don't think you should vote for this because we already do so much for the farmers and we give them nice pay and we sing songs to them, you know, page and a half exculpation about why the shareholders shouldn't support this. So of course, the shareholders don't support it. Then the board comes back to this guy and says, you know, see, the shareholders didn't want it. Right. You know, they totally, totally sabotaged it. So the question is, you know, to any shareholder, and I and I get there are pension funds that have to maximize, you know, they're required to maximize, you know, but if you ask any shareholder, hey, would you be willing to give up, you know, like a couple of pennies? on your stock to ensure that these farmers can feed their kids and mm-hmm. not come across our border? I know the answer would be yes. I think if you I frame it like a, that, yes. Well, hey, I did a stock analysis of Starbucks around the same time. And I found if Starbucks paid fair trade pricing for 100% of its coffee at the time, mm-hmm. they would have gone from 317 million after-tax profit to 303 million after-tax profit. Wow. It was nothing. And now they're 10 times that size. It was right. nothing. The, the, the cost uh, differentiation uh, differential on the stock was, I think, from $47 to $46.50. Yeah. You know, that's what the hit on the stock would have been. Yeah, Just, that's, I mean, no, that's so much that's, in the world. It's amazing. It's amazing. Because I was going to say, like, the, the, the counter argument would be, well, if we if we give that much back to the farmers, then that actually takes away jobs from Starbucks employees currently in America, right? You could be earning minimum wage, yeah. Right, but you, but and, and you, but you could you could make that argument, but then you just made the argument where it's not, it's a fifteen million dollar difference. That's bonuses for the head of the companies anyway. They just That's don't take that. Bonuses. That's the amount of coffee they throw out at the end of daily meetings with it's, the staff. You know, right? That's no, what I'm no, saying. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. In the world yeah. of in the world of large corporations, that's pocket change. Yeah, but I guess that. But my my point being that it, you couldn't make the argument that it would affect U.S. employment in that company because it no, wouldn't. No, affect. you could. No, you can't. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. Yes, if if you could make that argument, I would say, okay, well, that's a reasonable argument. You know, because I'm not like a, a raging radical on this. I'm, I'm sure. just a very sober an efficient and successful business person. There are companies that are doing stuff like this out there, but you know, the large companies at the end of the day, I, I said to the Starbucks, uh, the person in charge of uh, stakeholder engagement at the time, I said to her, if you, if you instituted this, mm-hmm. which would really not cost you anything, right. your, market, it, it, you your know, market share would probably go up. You know what it would know? cost them? Probably half of their marketing budget, and that's how you sp- and that's how you that's how you allocate that. You just say we're going to take it out of marketing, right? Yeah. Which we were just talking about, right. and put it into this. And and that was without, by the way, those calculations I made were without increasing the cost of a penny to the coffee in the store. Mm-hmm. So if they mm-hmm. wanted to, they could have mm-hmm. raised the cost of a cup two cents and covered the damn thing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I said to her, I said, you could be. If you did this, you could be the greatest corporation in history. You could really make a name for yourself and model for other people the right way to, you know, right livelihood. And so that's not going to happen, you don't think? Well, hell no. Her response was, we could, Dean, but we won't. She said, that's that's not how we are as a corporation. She was an ex-social worker, so she had a little sympathy for it. Sure. So anyway, you know, I mean, it's not like you don't know what the answer is. It's it's really about people's willingness to share. 
totally it's really about that yeah you know what about the golden rule what about all these great judeo-christian ethics that white nationalists are so worried (laughs) about losing when they're not operating in that world anyway come on so we said we said usd organic seal you said it was bird 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 friendly bird friendly and then fair trade fair trade is there anything else? I mean, direct yeah. trade is like a, a big term out there as well. Do you want to, want to talk about that at all? Direct is that... trade is meaningless. Okay. Direct trade is a self-identified label that two companies came up with, Counterculture and Intelligentsia. They came up with probably because they didn't want to go organic or fair trade and have to pay more money to the farmers. And have, mm-hmm. As one one company told me, I don't want no, no government people telling me what to do, you know, kind of like libertarian 2000. Yeah, yeah. So they came came up with this thing that they called direct trade and they created a label, but there is no such thing as direct trade. There's no regulations. There's no rules, no governing body. Anybody can say it. And what it was supposed to mean when, when counterculture started it, what it was supposed to mean was we buy directly from the farmers. We have a direct relationship with the farmers so we can afford to pay them more because we're cutting out all the middlemen. Even at its heyday, counterculture was never hundred percent direct trade. They had maybe two or three direct trade relationships but the other 10 countries we work with were just standard market stuff. However, their advertising always led with direct trade. Mm. Green Mountain, Starbucks, they got Starbucks was 3% fair trade. Green Mountain was at maybe 15 at its heyday. But their advertisements mm. always made it look like they were 100%. Slimy. Slimy. That's called marketing, successful marketing. So the direct trade people went one step further. They completely made it up and then start slapping it on there. So the companies that created this direct trade seal, you know, are beholden to no one, even though it was started off with some pretty good intentions. Sure. What happened was it's devolved into anybody who's got a coffee company now slaps direct trade on there, not because they have direct relationships with the farmer, but because they can say that they're direct trade. So what do they do? They buy from the broker, just like everybody else. They buy from a broker and then they ask the broker for information on the farmer. Mm-hmm. The broker supplies it because the broker got it from the exporter. So it's so far removed from a real relationship, but they say, oh, we're direct trade. It has no meaning whatsoever. You okay. know, I mean, we say we're direct trade because we are direct trade. <laughs> we have direct relationships with everybody and we buy directly. But why is there not a a valid, the same as organic certified and fair trade? There's obviously trust trustworthy uh, leaders in that. Why is there not yeah. the same for direct trade? Because direct trade is, is amorphous. It, it, okay. was, it, it just sort of swept into the universe and now it's 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 open source you know everybody's gotcha using it you, you, you need to create a different name for it then to, that's to, right right yeah, right yeah. well i mean you know i mean I, even fair trade you know I, I mean to me fair trade should be called you could just got to improve that right you just maybe improve uh, definitely fair yeah. trade yeah. should be called fairer trade because it's not fair trade it's still ultimately tied to the world coffee market and still you know there's just funny things going on, you know, with some people Mm -hmm. um, around it, it it needs to be stiffened up. So there's that. Then there's one more label called Utskape, which means uh, in Mayan means good coffee. It's more European than here. And it's tied into Rainforest Alliance, which Utskape, U-T-Z, Uts, Uts means good. Kape, K-A-P-E-H, means coffee. Utskape, good coffee in Mayan. It was the creation, again, a self-created label by large coffee exporters from Latin America and importers in Europe because they didn't want to join fair trade and pay the price. They didn't want to join organics and pay the price. So it's like, well, what can we do to, we want a label too. You know, we want to fool a consumer too. So they started their own label. It's got some okay stuff, but at the end of the day, what is it? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't bring more money to the farmers. And, and if you're not bringing more money to the farmers, you're not hitting the base of this whole problem. That's one of the big issues with um, Rainforest Alliance, which is the other label. It's, it's yeah. just joined with Utskape. Rainforest Alliance was a great environmental group that started working in coffee. And as soon as they did, I started to see on their annual report, like General Mills on the board of directors. Uh-uh. Starbucks on the board of directors, yeah, Kraft on the board of directors, uh-oh. and you know, you know, oh, yeah. 
follow the money. You know that if all those guys are on the board of directors, that that organization- It's, it's about to get diluted real quick. <laughs> right, right. So Rainforest Alliance started a lesson, their shade standards. They used to be right up there with the Smithsonian for shade grown. Mm-hmm. So they started lessening those standards so that the larger companies could come in with their very large licensing fees. And, you know, it's okay, but it doesn't require organics. It talks about how good it is for the environment, but it doesn't say you can't use pesticides. Mm. It mm. talks about how good they are for the social welfare of the farmer, but there's no minimum fee. There's no payment requirement to the farmer. I mean, when I started looking at Rainforest Alliance in Guatemala, it said the standard was they would tell the world on the front page, we guarantee the social welfare of the farmers. So like diggy, 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 diggy down into the bowels of their memorandum of understanding with the companies, their licensing agreements. The licensing agreement said, you agree that you will pay at least the minimum that is required by the national entity of that country. Well, in Guatemala, that was like 26 cents a day and no benefits and no long-term employment You know, for, for transitory workers, which means 90% of farm workers. So it's like, oh, is that really that good? <laughs> <laughs> um, we, talk, we talked a lot about the farmer here. And, and can you give us a like a voice of the farmer, like what do they, what do they think about, I guess, everything going on, whether it's certifications, whether it's uh, the price of coffee, whether it, you know, it, cause it seems like they're just like, we just want to live off our land, grow coffee. And like, you know, it very simplified. And, and it seems like they might be in, in battle with all these complications on, on these, well, all these different things. Like, absolutely what, what is right. the voice for them? Like, what, no how do they, problem. First off, let me say that one of the best things about fair trade that 99% of the people involved in fair trade haven't a clue because they haven't been around long enough and it's just a label on something you buy. Right. One of the best things about fair trade is that it has worked with groups in the global south to help them organize. And so over the last generation, last 10 years, 15 years, there has emerged a really strong southern voice in all this. You know, I'm proud that I work with most of those people and most of them are women. Mm -hmm. So it's really great. And they are very clear about where they stand. Most farmers don't want to rock the boat. When Alexa Gente comes into town, you know, they're not going to say, oh, pay us more money. You know, it's like, yes, sir. Where do you want me to jump? You know, come on. They, they, we control 100% of their income. We control their future. One, one Ethiopian farmer told me a long time ago, he said, Dean, all this stuff is great, but at the end of the day, we are price takers, not price makers, yep. right? So what we do is try to change that equation. Not only fair trade, but what, what Dean Spean's business model is about is changing that equation. So the voice of the farmer coming from a lot of people, but let's talk about the woman. The voice of the farm woman who does so much of the work and handles the money on most farms is this. We need to be paid more for our coffee. We're not being treated with dignity. Mm-hmm. We need more of a voice in the setting of the trade rules themselves, because it's yeah. not just money. Mm-hmm. It's an entire international trade system, right? They, they need rules, to see it at that table. Yes. Standard yes. contracts, everything. Yes. Yep. So for example, pre-harvest finance, we need to be paid a portion of the money up front mm-hmm. for the harvest we're about to embark on, because if not, we have to go to local banks or coyotes and mm-hmm. borrow money at exorbitant 60% you know, interest rate because we don't have the money to process our crop. If you will front us a portion of our contract, then we can afford like to do this without going to the to the to the outside lenders. Yeah. So that's that used to be a requirement of fair trade, pre-harvest finance. Hmm. A requirement. And that disappeared right around the time when the big companies started to come into the fair trade movement. And all of a sudden the rules started to change and they're really much nicer for the big companies. You know, welcome to the world of 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 uh capture. Sure. As we were talking about earlier, you know, where the regulatory agencies get captured by the regulated who supply the resources, who supply the information, who have the power. So the farmers know what's up and they want change, but they also know that they don't have that much of a voice because coffee is a commodity. So if a bunch of farmers stand up and say, hell no, we're not selling it to you for less than this. Mm-hmm. It's a big world and there's a lot of coffee out there. Yeah. So Starbucks, Green Mountain, anybody's going to shrug their shoulders and say, fine, we'll go two valleys over where they'll sell it to us for what we ask. Right. That was a problem in the beginning of fair trade. 
an exporter would go to the farmers and say, okay, I want to buy some fair trade coffee off you. And they're, oh, that's great. You're going to pay real prices. Yeah, I'll buy one. I, I heard this from several coffee farm organizations in different countries, uh, Colombia and Peru specifically. They said, yeah, they come in and they say, we'll buy that container for the fair trade price of 140, let's say, a pound. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we want to buy two other containers that aren't fair trade, and we're going to pay you less than the world market price. So at the end of the day, it's a wash. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we get the exporter, we get to sell that container as a fair trade container. And so if you're Joe Schmo Coffee Company up here, or worse, a big company that knows better, and you're buying that container from an importer who bought it from an exporter, it says it's certified fair trade. That's all you got to know. Then you right. represent a consumer. This is fair trade. But it's, mm. it's, it's not. It's actually keeping the system intact. So there's a lot of work to be done here. And the farmers know all these games, but their, their, voice, their voice is really only emerging. Because even though there are some really great Southern farmer organizations, who's got the power at the end of the day? Sure. Right? Yeah. So that's where we are. And that's what we're trying to do is model a way that, yes, we, we willingly give up the power that our privilege allows us. And we're doing fine, you know? I mean, everybody at Dean's Beans has 100% healthcare. Nobody pays co-pays, premiums, nothing. No other company does that. Mm -hmm. Everybody gets massive, like $5,000 bonuses at the end of the year. And we're a little company with 16 people. You know, that's, right. that's a chunk, yeah. you know? Everybody gets great pay, bonuses, the whole thing. What can I say? We, you know, we're, we're walking our talk and trying to model that this talk is something that everybody can be doing. If if you're willing to really be fair. You mentioned you mentioned uh, a couple other companies that you think are doing it right. Do, do you mind shouting them out at all? It just Well, in the coffee sphere, Equal Exchange, they're the granddad of uh, of fair okay. trade companies. Re yeah. Really good people. You know, they're they're like 60 million dollars sales. They're okay. You know, they're solid. They're not going anywhere. Yeah, great. Um, Peace Coffee in Minneapolis, Cafe uh, Campesino down at uh, America's Georgia. They're all over the place. There's a, there's a consortium that I was a co-founder of many years ago called Cooperative Coffees. Okay. And we were all um, like 25 small coffee companies that couldn't buy direct as individual companies. Mm -hmm. But if we pull together collectively, we could go down there and buy these containers directly from the, from the farmer co-ops and, and, and do real direct trade. We were doing direct trade since about 96 hmm. Years before direct trade became a label, but we didn't call it direct trade. So it's called a good business, <laughs> ethical business, Eth yeah. ethical business. Yeah. So, so the companies that are part of uh, cooperative coffees are all great companies, and they're all doing great work. So there's them. Yeah. Outside of the coffee sphere, there's Alter Echo, which is uh, a social justice coffee and commodity organization. Okay. There's uh, Patagonia. Yeah. You know, a great company. I wanted to end on maybe some optimism, you know, maybe what are you optimism about? What are the next three to five years look like for maybe for you personally and for the company? Is there some optimistic optimism there on where we're going within the industry? And are you optimistic that consumers will start to care a little more, you know, dig a little deeper in, into what they're buying? Because to me, we're talking about power. We're talking about market makers. That's the real market makers. That's the real market changers or consumers. Yes. Yeah. So let me say one thing about consumers. Consumers have enormous power. The biggest. And companies know it. That's mm -hmm. why companies do their damnedest to keep consumers in the dark. Everything we've said today, everything that's a progressive move forward, and not in progressive, that sounds political, a positive, yeah. ethically based move forward gets captured and manipulated and turned around by other companies to maintain their power position in the market and to maintain their amount of money they're making. Mm -hmm. Anything you look at has been captured. I mean, I learned that lesson when I was going up in an elevator to my dentist's office when I was a teenager. And all of a sudden the Muzak in the elevator was playing all you need is love as Muzak. And it hit me, it hit me that even the most revolutionary thing becomes captured and monetized and fed back as problem to, to people. And so that's, that's what's going on. And it always is. So until the truth tellers step up and break through that wall of greenwashing, manipulation, lying, unethical lying, <laughs> you know, let's name it for what it is <laughs> until the barrier gets broken and say laws get strengthened on, 
you know, on, on misrepresentation, commercial misrepresentation, we need much stronger laws. Until that happens, we're just going round and round and round. Now, I feel incredibly optimistic because the new generation coming up because of social media has the potential to be more savvy, yep. although we already see how that's getting captured. Even Spotify and, you know, Pandora mm. have captured the authenticity of music, right? And, and, and people, are, artists are like farmers. Mm. They're getting nothing for their toil. And, you know, the, the companies mm. are capturing it, marketing it and controlling it. So, you know, if you want to look for an analogy, that's a good one. That's a good one. But I'm optimistic because Ralph Nader once said that you can look at the course of history and it's power over people and people fighting back against that power. Sometimes the power over wins and sometimes the people fight back and they win. And history is just a series of back and forths. And so it's not like, I don't, I really, I, I, I love Obama, but I really disagree with him and everybody else who said that the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. It only bends towards justice if we bust our asses and make it so. Yeah, it's, right? it's, a, it's hard it's work to, to make hands. that happen. Yeah. So, yeah. so for me, I've got a couple of good years of fight left in me, but I also have other things I want to do. I want to work with fisheries which I used to work with years ago. You know, I want to work with yeah. I want to work with child hunger. I want to work with a whole bunch of things that aren't coffee. So I realize if I only got, you know, 10 more years to schlep up and down mountains and I want to oh, no, schlep up and down some different mountains, you know, I'm 68, <laughs> you know. If I want to be schlepping up and down those mountains for a dozen more years, then I got to move on and do some things here, you know. <laughs> so I'm setting up Dean's Beans to be a radically different organization. I want Dean's Beans to be owned by the farmers. Mm. the employees and our consumers a third each i'm working on how to set that up that's, that's what that's what that's, it should look like that's you know? that's an amazing amazing conversation to have as well is how do you hey. how do you legally set up something like that i didn't spend know? years as a lawyer for nothing but <laughs> if you want to have a panel someday me and a panel who can talk about that issue let's and do structure it. in the future let's do that let's, let's do spend that an hour doing Okay. How cool would that be? We're okay. gonna do it. We're gonna do it. I, we could keep going on for for hours hey, and this hours. Is work for me. What are you talking about? I know. I clock. <laughs> this is what I do for a living every day. I scream and yell at people. That's a good Seriously. gig. Just not employees good, or farmers. That's it. It's a good gig. It's a good gig to have. It's a good gig. Yeah, um, it's allowed me a platform to really grow as a person and to grow my understanding of justice and apply it. Amazing. Well, thank you so much again. Best of luck the rest of this year and, you know, give our best to, to all the farmers and, and all the team over there. Yeah. Uh, get, give them all the best from us. Thanks so much, Grant. It's been a pleasure. Thanks everybody for listening to the episode. Just want to give a, a quick shout out to the Cause Artist Partners, everyone who has signed up for it. Um, truly appreciate it. I will uh, list the link in below so you can check them out. If you want to become a partner, uh, just go to causeartist.com slash partners. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Bye.